you know, we can go really long points in our life and just not be centering joy because we are so busy self-validating through achievement and perfectionism rather than asking ourselves like, hey, wait a second, what do I actually want to spend my time doing? How do I want to look back at this stage in my life? And it it usually isn't, oh, I got that promotion. Oh, I got that degree. Oh, I got, you know, X many followers on Instagram, etc. Welcome back, everyone, to Diary of an Empath. So today's guest is super special. I have been wanting to do a episode on just high achievers and perfectionism because I think a lot of us struggle with that. And I know that a lot of my clients have come to me with that, and it's something that I personally still struggle with to this day. So my next guest, Dr. Jen Douglas, is a clinical assistant professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine and is one of the leading experts on perfectionism. Dr. Jen has worked in the field of mental health since 2008, and in addition to her private practice, Dr. Jen provides individual and group care for anxiety, depression, trauma, eating disorders through Stanford University's Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. She also teaches coursework on diversity to postdoctoral fellows at Stanford University, and she runs courses to the public on how to manage perfectionism. So I hope I got all that right, that you you, you, you come with an amazing variety. <laughs> that must be an old bio, because I'm definitely too tired to do all of those things now, but I did at one point do all of those at once, and it was wild. From what I got from all that, you have an extreme variety of just, you know, knowledge and you come with a lot of experience on this topic. I'm curious, tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you get interested with studying perfectionism? So I was not going to go into mental health. I was going to be a lawyer uh, as an undergraduate. And then I took a course because it started at 1 p.m. and I could go out partying the night before. And that course happened to be about eating disorders. And so I took it. You know, I'm from Southern California. I had many, you know, friends who who struggled with that issue. And I was hooked. It was fascinating. It was this hugely, you know, feminist-oriented sort of, you know, problems and solutions and how do we do this? And this is an underserved population. And so I, you know, completely changed what I thought I'd do with my life. And I went to graduate school in particular to treat um, disordered eating and trauma, which are, you know, very, very linked. And we didn't know how linked they were until, you know, more recently. And then when I started to look at, you know, my core, you know, the original loves of my life, so disordered eating and trauma, the sort of common thread tended to be folks who would emerge from these issues, turning towards high achievement and turning towards perfectionism as essentially a coping mechanism. You know, when we think about perfectionism and body image, that's where a lot of eating disorders actually start. And, you know, that's where the ideology comes from. And then when we think about trauma, many individuals turn to high achievement and perfectionism as a coping mechanism for coping with trauma. Yeah. And I know for me, I really connect with this need to have high achievements in my life. And I know for me, that stems a lot from childhood. Did you find that any of your characteristics kind of led you into this path? Was there anything from your childhood that kind of led you into this? For me specifically, I know I became a healer and I was really connected with the mental health field because of some of the things that I went through before when I was a kid. And I felt a need to always have to be the best. I was in the military. I always had to be like the men in the Marine Corps. I worked in the prison system, always around men. So I always felt like I had to prove myself. And I look back and I know that I was like that as a kid and I see the connections. So was there any connections for you as to how maybe you got into this field? Oh, 
I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense looking at back at it now, um, but certainly around finding perfectionism as this particular niche that I love to teach about and to work with. I am the daughter of an immigrant. And for, so for many people who've seen their parents immigrate and, you know, who, who may be first generation, you know, Americans, there is so much pressure to achieve based on safety because my father immigrated, was born in Europe after his parents went through the Holocaust and were in concentration camps. And so it was very much a safety oriented move to the United States. And so, you know, there was pressure on him to achieve and to kind of pull, you know, up the socioeconomic ladder, et cetera. And then as children, we, we receive these, you know, subconscious signals about, you know, where safety comes from, from our family. And Mm -hmm. so, so often some of this can get culturally wrapped up, especially in immigrant families, but in many families around achievement, which in my family has a lot to do with academia, et cetera. And so it, it's an interesting thing. And what, what I love about sort of my own journey and then working with other folks who, who are working through their own perfectionism is, is realizing that that isn't a finish line that, that doesn't actually do the trick. And our perfectionism actually makes us feel less secure because it's not unconditional. And so it was a fascinating thing because many, you know, mental health providers, you know, we go back to graduate school, we think, oh, as soon as I get this degree and I get my dream job and then everything is going to be okay. And I went to graduate school and I got my dream job and like, that was okay, but it had nothing to do with my self-acceptance or who I was as a person. Yes. And so it's only after we, for many of my perfectionists who come to me, who either take my online course or work with me individually, they come to me because they already checked all the boxes mm-hmm. and it, it, it didn't work. And so it's a, it's a beautiful journey that I get to have and I get to repeatedly go back to because it's, it's humbling to realize that all of those external signals don't actually get us what we want. There's a few things that popped out that you said. So, you know, I can relate with the cultural aspect because my mom's parents and my my dad's parents were all immigrants. And so my mom, she came into this this diversity of her mom is from Brazil, her dad is from Palestine, two very different cultures. And I think that level of expectations that was put on her and then kind of trickled down to what the perfect daughter is supposed to be like trickled into how I am as an adult. And so I see these links. And when I'm hearing you talk about that, I'm like, oh my God, that was so me. The second thing that popped up that really stood out when you said, when is enough enough almost? Because I checked all these boxes. Okay. I did the military. I got my master's. Then I got my license and I thought, okay, that's going to be the pinnacle. When I achieve these things, I'll be happy. But then I achieved them and I'm like, okay, well, I'm still not feeling fulfilled. Okay, then I I started all doing all these other things. I started doing my readings. I started doing my podcast. Okay, now if I just achieve these things, I'm going to be happy. So I keep ticking all these boxes and it's never enough. And I think when we hear the word perfection, we often think of this to be associated with like good or perfect. And I think a lot of it's due to social media. But if someone struggles with perfection, what does that look like? So exactly what you were talking about, and and one of the things we might talk about today is the hedonic treadmill. What is sort of a hallmark level of perfectionism is is exactly that never enoughness. Okay, this degree is enough, or I always wanted this relationship, but now that I have this relationship, oh, you know, we want to buy a house, or oh, we want to have a baby, or oh, you know, I want the next job, and it's it's constantly I call it moving the goalposts, where we accomplish one thing, but then we're just going to change that goalpost and not actually celebrate what we initially were looking for. 
And scientifically, we've proved this. It's, it's called the hedonic treadmill, which basically means that as humans, we're generally striving for one thing or another at any given time. And we're, we're subconsciously telling ourselves, well, if I get this thing or I do this thing or I accomplish this thing, then I will be happy. But while we might experience a blip of, you know, excitement or achievement and satisfaction that we actually return to baseline because external validation doesn't actually make, you know, it doesn't move the needle in terms of our happiness. You know, many folks, like you were saying, you know, this, this goal of getting a degree, I don't know about you, but when I'm looking for, you know, a boost of serotonin in my life, I don't pull out my degree. That's not where I go. I actually don't know where right. my degree is, <laughs> Right. but it's, you know, we're, we're, again, this is very cultural and the social media has made it just amplified. I'm old enough yes. that there weren't smartphones when I was in college. Um, same, but, you know, same. you're right. And, <laughs> and so, you know, looking at this because all, we have all of these pressures and it's just exacerbated by the fact that we have access to those pressures, you know, at our bedside table from the first time we wake up until last thing we see before we go to bed at night. I agree. And, you know, I was watching a podcast with Jay Shetty and one thing he said, if you were to wake up, would you invite 50 people into your room? As soon as you wake up, when you think about it, you're like, oh my God, no, I don't even want one person in my room when I wake up. When you're looking at your phone and you're opening Instagram, you're opening up Facebook and that's the first thing you do in the morning or before you go to sleep, that's what you're doing. You are inviting all of that energy. And I think that social media has really made it more difficult to you know, we we have these expectations of what society looks at as perfect or perfection or where mm -hmm. you should be in life. And I think we set these unrealistic expectations on ourselves. And another thing that I think about too is those dopamine kicks when we're doing these things, you know? So it's like, are we getting addicted to these floods of dopamine kicks that we're getting? And then what happens when we're not getting them? We're still searching for these good jobs, these, these achievements. And at what point, you know, do we have to say, okay, what's realistic and what's not? Is there a certain time in our life, would you say that perfectionism is most likely to occur? Or maybe when somebody would have more bouts or events that would, maybe they would struggle with thoughts of, I need to be perfect. I need to have these achievements. So I think about perfectionism and anxiety and even depression. I, I talk to my clients about that, that it's essentially like an opportunistic infection. You know, if, if we have seeds of it or if we've experienced it before, we know that we might be a bit vulnerable to it and that's okay. That's just neurodiversity and that's perfectly fine. But that there are times when if we have weakened resilience to that, it will take advantage of that. So if you think about times of transition, times of uncertainty, times where our self-confidence might not be where it is normally, generally we've seen, you know, we've seen it for the past two years with, you know, all of the uncertainty we've seen in our world in the last two years. You know, we see it when people have really big life changes like graduating from college, you know, going through a divorce, having children, really things that can kind of rock our identity because we are presented often subconsciously and sometimes consciously, we're sort of presented this blueprint for what is an acceptable life and what is the roadmap. And when we have to make choices where we have to make a decision to really commit to one path, or it's not clear which, which path we should take, then we can get into a feedback loop where we're trying to make the perfect decision when the perfect decision doesn't actually exist. And what does that feedback loop look like when you talk about the feedback loop? What What is the cycle of these thought processes that might happen when someone's going through that? Yes. So one of the things that I ask people to look out for is kind of the endless cycle of research. 
and research can essentially turn into avoidance of actually doing the thing. So, you know, these are the folks who are going to swipe right and talk to a hundred people on Tinder before they're going to ever go on a date. And they might talk to them all for three months before they ever go on a date and meet anybody. It might be somebody who researches, you know, what college to go to or what graduate school to go to so much that they end up not actually turning in the application because they couldn't commit to pressing send on a program or on a situation in their life that would be imperfect. And so that makes me think about procrastination. And yes. is, there, if, is there a link between <laughs> procrastination? And because I know for me, like I, I, I put my... I'm really hard on myself with everything I do. And anyone who knows me who's listening to this is probably like shaking their head because they know how I am. When I do something, I put all my energy into it, but I procrastinate on a lot of things and I don't know what that link is because I'm I'm listening to you and I'm like, yeah, I do that. <laughs> so what's the link with procrastination? Because I, I know that it happens. So one of the things you asked earlier too was sort of what does perfectionism look like in somebody's life? And anything is healthy in a certain dosage. So perfectionism is okay if it shows up in the things that matter most to you in life. Like, you know, I want to be a really, really good parent. That's very, very important to me. I want to be a really, really good partner. That's very important to me. Whether or not my inbox is at zero isn't enough to actually keep me up at night. And so we want to start making those kind of priorities in our life. Where perfectionism links to procrastination is when we're trying to be perfect on every single thing that's going on in our lives. So for instance, the other day, I had to buy a toaster, okay? <laughs> toaster died after like, 20 years. And it was hysterical because I knew what I wanted. It was quite simple. The second option would have been fine. And I found myself on like page five of toasters on Amazon. <laughs> and like, I don't need to evaluate 70 toasters before I buy a toaster. But right. that's what it looks like. And then eventually, you read about 60 toasters. And so now, you know, and they all have pluses and minuses. And then we get frozen because we haven't found the perfect one. And I could feel myself saying, oh, well, I'll just do this tomorrow. And behind that is, oh, then I'll find, right? Like, and That's then I'll me. find the perfect one. And so as soon as that comes up for me as a, you know, perfectionist in recovery, I'm like, oh, buy that one, go. It's gonna, it's gonna be what it is. But that's the signal when we're, when we're telling ourselves, I just need a little more research. I will be happy when X, you know, I'm going to be a worthy person if Y, those are sort of the trigger phrases that should let us know, hey, this is perfectionism showing up and we have to move away from it. It makes me feel like too, I hear you talk about toasters, but I think about relationships <laughs> yes. and how that can manifest into the relationships in our lives. Like, okay, if I just find that perfect person. And I think too, it, it's gray. There's a lot of gray area with that because, you know, are some relationships toxic? Absolutely. Should you be very mindful of the energy you let in your life? Absolutely. But there's never that perfect relationship. And I find myself not dating hardly at all. Well, not da not dating at all because I I don't want to waste my time. I don't want to go on dates. If 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 they don't meet X, Y, and Z, I'm like yep. I'm not even going to bother. And it makes me think about is there a link between perfectionism and, and relationships? And I'm kind of having this light bulb moment that I think there is. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. So there's this wonderful book, and I I am not a fan of the person anymore because of some of the controversy, but um, the comedian Aziz Ansari co-wrote a book with a sociologist, and it's called Modern Romance, and it's an, a, an investigation, and it's really about modern dating. And I love this book. I use it with a lot of, of my folks who, who see perfectionism come up in dating. 
because what they talk about is that we have access to too much choice now. We do. Side note, did you guys know that I'm not only a therapist, but I'm also a professional tarot reader? It's not exactly me hovering over a crystal ball telling your future. It's a tool to connect with your guides and your higher self to help you in certain areas of your life. Tarot genuinely changed my life and it can potentially change yours too. Click on the link in this podcast for more info. Okay, back to the podcast. Right. You're talking about 50 people in the bedroom, you know, before we get up, that's kind of what it is. Like we, I can swipe right or left on 150 people tonight as I'm sitting watching Netflix. Mm-hmm. And so there could, and there could be 150 people tomorrow. And so there's always that possibility of wait, something better could come along tomorrow. Yes. This happened before, obviously, you know, all the way back to, you know, middle ages where, you know, we're in a town of a hundred people and, you know, someone from the next town might come over to deliver milk or whatever, but our access leaves us paralyzed. And it's the same thing as with the toasters. Everyone's going to have flaws. There are going to be, you know, imperfect partners, no matter what we know from the relationship research that how people work on relationships and work through their imperfections has more bearing on whether or not relationships are successful versus how strong the spark is at the very beginning. But if we have perfectionistic thinking, you know, and a heavy dose of Instagram and the rest of our, you know, unrealistic romantic culture, and we're expecting the spark from the first message, the perfect, like meet cute first date, you know, them to be absolutely like idyllic with every friend and family member we've ever had, you know, and if they forget our dog's birthday once, we're furious, you know, there's all these metrics by which we can expect other people in our lives to be perfect. Because the the other thing that really does influence perfectionism in relationships is Perfectionists can't tend to give 120% to everything. Our military folks are better. Thank you for your service, right? Like no matter what it is, for me, it was picking out a toaster last night. Like we, we give and give and give in very, very real ways. And then if someone shows up and they're giving 102% or they're giving 95%, we might find that very unacceptable because we're so used to overachieving even in how we show up in relationships. That's a huge, huge point. I, oh my God. I, so I <laughs> give and give and give. And I have this expectation that sometimes I have to come to a realization, even in friendships, that not everybody is going to put in the energy the way that I do. Not everyone is like me. And when that happens, I found myself becoming really disappointed and just just always becoming disappointed with relationships in my life because I had this expectation that they would be like me that they would think like me, that they would put in the effort like me, that they would come through the way that I do in my relationships and my friendships. And the reality is that's not always the case. And I'm not by any means saying to put in energy where you're not getting any energy back. However, you know, I just found that I would put these people like kind of like idealize them and put them on a pedestal Mm -hmm. of what I thought the perfect person would be or who I thought they would become. And I've had to put a lot of work into believing who someone is when they are showing me who they are to not expect them to react the same way, to not expect them to be mind readers and not expect them to come through in the same ways. I can say what my standards are and I can say what I hope 
that I want out of the relationship and they can choose to do it or not do it. And so I really feel like that is important, especially for somebody who strives to be a high achiever or perfectionism. One thing for me too, not only in relationships, I struggle a lot with anxiety, especially when it comes to everything that I do. I don't know how to slow down. I know I need to slow down. I know I need to do self-care. I know I need to work on my anxiety, but I don't know how sometimes because it's almost like this addiction. I don't know if it's like these dopamine surges that I'm getting, or I just don't know how to not slow down out of fear that if I don't do well, that something's going to happen. It's almost like it triggers this survival mode for me. If I don't do X, Y, and Z, then something bad might happen. When in reality, I know if I'm doing X, Y, and Z, I'm going to burn out. So what is your advice to anyone who's struggling with overachieving and not being able to do self-care or someone who has anxiety? Yes, yes, yes. That's such such a wonderful point. And I really believe that perfectionism is a particular flavor or manifestation of anxiety, but the core is the same. And so this is what my course basically walks through, you know, walks through first, where did this thing come from? Like you were saying, you know, expectations, you know, intergenerational, you know, pressure and, and the idea of succeeding. But then we get to this point with perfectionists where we're so used to giving 120% in everything, in work, in our friendships, you know, in anything. It can be how we decorate our house or how we, you know, do whatever, train our dog. Um and then we get caught in this space where we don't, we're so used to being perfect and have been perfect for so long that we don't actually trust that the world will accept us if we are not. And that's usually the core fear that I find with individuals who are struggling to slow down is then it gets catastrophized of, oh, if I slow down, this will fall apart or this person, you know, will, will not accept me as a friend or a family member if I don't do everything because I've always done everything, you know oh, how could I show up to even do a grocery run in like sweats and flip-flops because I should be put together when I, you know, I'm out into the world. We kind of back ourselves into this corner where even we only look at ourselves as acceptable if we show up perfectly. And so the, the beautiful agent of change is when we start to show up imperfectly and then watch the world not fall apart. Like what's the evidence behind it? Yeah. Exactly. It's that first weekend where like, you know what, I'm not going to answer one work email. I'm going to snooze them all till Monday at 8am. And then we get to Monday and we realize nothing bad has happened. You know, it's when our friends have suggested Thai food for the sixth time. And we're so sick of Thai food. And we're like, actually, and we're texting, we're saying, actually, can we get burgers? I'm kind of dying for burgers. And they're like, sure, as opposed to blowing up the entire friendship. You know, it's, it's an exercise in taking up space, including up taking up space to rest that perfectionists have essentially through their own anxiety, you know, have backed away from so much that imperfection has become unfamiliar and scary. I found it part of my identity. And yes. I think, you know, for me, it's so much more complicated than just taking a weekend out and resting. It really became part of my identity. Everything that I do, I'm an overachiever. I do this, I do that. Everyone who knows me knows I do all of these things. And so it became part of who I am as a person. I'm a therapist. I'm a tarot reader. I'm a podcaster. I'm a mom. I'm a dancer. I'm a traveler. You know, all of these things became part of my identity. And I'm like, if I stop something or if I slow down, who am I? 
that's no longer part of me. I feel like I'm losing a limb. I feel like I'm losing an arm or a leg. That's how serious it is for me. And it has become one of the most difficult tasks to slow down, even though it's affecting my sleep. I don't sleep well. I'm always tired. And I still cannot find the time to slow down. And I finally have come to a point where I'm going part-time now. And I told, yes, it it was needed. I'm like, okay, if I'm not willing to stop these other things, I need to change. I need to do something because it's going to catch up with me. I'm burning out. And it was really hard to make that decision to get that time. But I came to a conclusion that every time I check these boxes, I'm never satisfied. And it's like the pinnacle at the top of the mountain is not there. Like I have to enjoy the journey. And if Mm -hmm. I can't enjoy the journey, then, then what's the point? Because I told myself, if I get to the end of the race, that's it. I'm going to be happy. Well, I did that and I still wasn't happy. So it's like, I'm wasting all this time and I don't want to go back and look back 20 years and been like, I should have enjoyed the journey while Mm -hmm. I could and just slowed down. And a couple of things I heard you say, you know, about, anxiety and stress, what are some other coping mechanisms that someone can do if they find themselves struggling with this cycle? Is there any concrete examples of what maybe you tell your clients to do if they're struggling with some of these things? One thing that can happen with anxiety, perfectionism, and high achievement is it can also be essentially an avoidance tactic. So if I am feeling a negative emotion, whether it be sadness or anger or disappointment or grief, overworking or somehow otherwise embodying perfectionism in my life is my way of kind of staying up here and having kind of a neck up experience of my life, a very intellectualized version of my life versus a more embodied sort of tuned into my emotions experience of my life. So I have clients who come to me and they are, I work in Silicon Valley. And so I have clients who come to me and they are exhausted and burned out and they've put everything into their job for the last five years, et cetera. And they come to the other side. They look like they have the perfect life on paper, but they're quite unhappy. And so it may be that they have old feelings of inadequacy. And so addressing that and actually learning to take care of themselves, actually learning that they don't have to earn taking care of themselves. I have a lot of folks who do more meditation and yoga because it's a way of physically and and psychologically slowing down. I have other folks, I just sent a working mom to a rage room to go smash old computer monitors because that's that. behind her perfectionism. She's furious that she has had to work you know, twice as hard as everybody else, and then go home and work three times as hard as anybody else, you know, as a working mom who's not treated the same because of her gender. And she's had nowhere to put that emotion for her whole life. And, you know, as, as, as folks, you know, who are socialized as women, we're often also, you know, treated in a way where we learn that anger is not acceptable. Even sadness can be not acceptable. You know, we're always supposed to show up bright eyed, bushy tailed, and, you know, happy in these ways. When often there's, you know, a backlog of all of this emotion that's been covered up by high achievement and high functioning for years. So anything that can tune somebody into that, including what we what we have denied ourselves for the sake of achievement. Yesterday, I'm in my late 30s. Yesterday, I bought rainbow roller skates and we'll be using them. Um, And I will be scooting (laughs) along next to my kid who's going to be on her scooter. Um, But it's something that, you know, we can go really long points in our life and just not be centering joy because we are so busy self-validating through achievement and perfectionism rather than asking ourselves like, Hey, wait a second. What do I actually want to spend my time doing? 
how do I want to look back at this stage in my life? And it, it usually isn't, oh, I got that promotion. Oh, I got that degree. Oh, I got, you know, X many followers on Instagram, et cetera. And what really fulfills you? Like, what's the key that really, truly makes you happy? And mm-hmm. I started asking myself those questions. And it's so I'm I'm somebody who, and I say this humbly, that outsiders will look at me and be like, okay, she's got it together. She travels. Mm-hmm. She's yep. got a business. She's got a podcast. She is a, a licensed therapist. She's doing all these great things. And, and great. I acknowledge that. And I've worked hard for that. But none of that fulfills me. None of it. Now, what does fulfill me, my podcast does fulfill me, helping others does fulfill me, and spending time with my daughter fulfills me. But not the things that I'm hard on myself for, getting the degree, getting the house, the way that I look, all these things that I felt so pressured to do based off of my gender, based off of the fact that I had no family support, based off of the fact of social media. I used to look and scroll and see these fitness models and be like, why didn't I look like them? I'm doing all the work. I'm doing all the things that I need to do. I have to be the best that I can be so that way no one can stand in my way and no one Mm. can take this life away from me. And I came to a conclusion that it's really the core is it's a safety mechanism for me. I'm fearful that if I don't do these things, that it's all going to be taken away from me and I'm not going to have anybody to help me. And that's what the key core for me was. And when I started to really think about it and kind of shift my mindset of what fulfills me, which is spending more time with my daughter, traveling, doing things that make me happy, being mindful and practicing mindfulness, my spirituality, those things don't require all these check boxes. Those are just experiencing the time that you have and being present. And I think a lot of people forget those things because we're constantly, social media is sending us notifications. We're being exposed to these picture perfect lives. We're in a filtered generation. We're on a swipe left, swipe right generation. I mean, hell, there's what, 7 billion people in the world. I'm still single and I can't find one person that I like because it's so hard to have a genuine connection. So what do you think about social media and the impact that social media has had on this need to be perfect? It's so funny because there was a big scandal with Facebook where they were like, oh my gosh, they knew that social media and Facebook was and Instagram were bad for you know young women's body image. And everybody in the eating disorder field was like, yeah. <laughs> like You're just you now see- realizing that? We've seen our demand at some of the eating disorders clinics go up by 300% just during COVID because people are more reliant on social media for connection than they were prior when they were, you know, out in the world in a different way. But it's brutal. There's this interesting comparison thing. So, so one thing is a lot of people, so I'm giggling because I do this too, but perfectionists can sometimes be hard on themselves for even doing anything imperfectly including getting mad at themselves for comparing to others. Mm-hmm. So comparison is actually an evolutionary survival tactic. If you think back to hunter-gathering era, if Sally goes and eats blackberries from one bush and Eric goes and eats blackberries from another bush and Sally lives and Eric dies, we need to pay attention to that to figure out how to survive. The modern day version of this is rubbernecking. So if there's an accident on the freeway and everybody stops to look, That's actually an instinctual thing because we are trying to get clues from other people like us, so other humans, about what is safety-inducing and what is danger-inducing. So comparison is hardwired into our brains. Anyone who's sitting here being like, oh, I compare people too much on Instagram, that is 
literally in our DNA to do that. The problem is exactly like you've been, you know, so eloquently talking about is we have access to too much information for our own good. Our brain was not built to process the amount of information that humans do in a day anymore. And you're seeing back, you know, there's this, you know, really interesting phenomenon where where individuals still used to compare back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, but you compared to people also within your social strata. And so it might be, oh, you know, this person has this slightly nicer oven in their house that kind of looks like my house and our kids go to the same school and we wear kind of the same clothes and da 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 da. And now we are privy to, you know, the private jets of the Kardashians and the plastic surgery of XYZ people and all these things. The the actual range that we have for comparison is so much broader. And so you you can literally, not even you can spend all day. There are entire, you know, multi-billion dollar companies designed to make us spend all day in that comparison track. Yes. It, Facebook is designed to keep you online. Instagram is designed to keep you online. And I talked about this on another podcast that it's very similar to the gambling techniques in Las Vegas where you're scrolling, 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 and there's really, there's never an end. So there's nothing triggering you to say, okay, this is, this is enough time I need to get off. And just like with gambling and you're getting those dopamine kicks, those reward systems in the brain, the same thing is happening when you're online and people don't realize that that's what's happening, but it's designed to keep you online. It's how they make money. The problem with social media is kind of evident. We know that it it's harmful to young teens. We know that it's harmful to body image. And I also tell my clients though, too, that what I personally did that helped me was to clean up my library. It's your library. Social media is a knowledge-based library and you can expose yourself to things that are going to help you learn, help you grow, or you can expose yourself to junk. If you do not get something out of following someone, whether it's knowledge-based or helping you in some way, unfollow. Take them off your Instagram feed. If you find yourself feeling bad about yourself, I just tell people, just click the unfollow button. I follow spirituality. I follow people like you who I can learn something from. I follow people that are going to help me within my career because those are my choices and no judgment to anyone who follows, you know, Mm -hmm. you can follow Kim Kardashian. That's your choice. But if you find yourself feeling bad or, you know, comparing yourself constantly and it's not helping you, I always say just clean up your library. Um, But I do agree that social media and the generation that we live in, it's so much knowledge that it's becoming so much of a problem. And it makes me nervous about where we're going to be in another 20, 30, 40, 50 years with the AI technology. It, It is scary. And we're seeing the suicide rates that are doubling and tripling, especially amongst young teens. I find that I tend to focus more on my shortcomings rather than my strengths. And I do feel like part of it is because of social media, because of comparison, because of these expectations. Why is it that you think that even as a human species or people who just struggle with perfectionism tend to focus more on what they don't have or their weaknesses rather than looking at the strengths because I'll post something. I'm not going to lie. I'm human. I'll post something and I'll have all these great comments and there's this one troll, yeah. user <laughs> one five seven nine ten, who just can't shut his mouth or just wants to talk shit and it pisses me off. And I'm like, why am I focusing on this one person? Is it something that we just inertly do as humans? Or is it something that you find that people that have perfectionism characteristics tend to struggle with? 
It's a great question. There's actually some really interesting data that's coming out from the evolutionary psychology kind of subspecialty that mm-hmm. that actually points to the fact that probably the more anxious humans are the ones who survive during times of extreme stress and famine and you know hunter gatherer. If anything, if anything happens, maybe I'll be the survivor. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, and it's it's like you know you picture who would have survived dealing with alliance back in the day. And it was probably the more anxious person who got stuck in the cave. So we've got some of those epigenetics hanging out still generations later. And, and so it, it absolutely is hardwired into, into DNA. We are, we are literally made, you know, it was only the last couple hundred years where we're sort of the top of the food chain. And so we, our brains developed in a time of significant more danger than we're exposed to today. And so we had to be tuned in to problems. Um, there's really interesting data, too, about how this can be different, the data in, in women and men, um, or at least folks are socialized as male and female, where for women, we can be more tuned into things like clutter and problems that are you know happening. Like we can have, I know the 15 things that have to happen around my house right now. I know what they are from laundry to like repainting to like, oh, we need to, this faucet runs slow. I know all of them. My partner will know if like something lights on fire and he will take care of it immediately and much better than I would in that situation. But there's an interesting kind of correlation between how we behave from a hunter versus gatherer perspective. But essentially, our brains are not built for the 21st century. Our brains are still a couple thousand years behind in terms of evolution. You know, we know our frontal lobes, which is, you know, the the logic center of our brains developed last. And our fight or flight centers, which are, you know, amygdala and hippocampus have been around much, much longer. So they're more established. And so we are meant to look for problems because we're supposed to be, you know, scanning the Serengeti and looking for predators. But right now we don't have threats like that. We have our inbox and, oh, did I get a scary email from my boss? Or did someone on the internet accuse me of something that I'm embarrassed about? That's what we have now, but the level of anxiety and response is still akin to that fight, flight, freeze, life or death response that's been ingrained in us as humans. That makes sense. And why we would maybe focus on the weaknesses versus the strengths. And the scary thing is, is technology has increased like tenfold in the last even hundred years. And you made a great point. Our brains have not been able to catch up. Our brains have been through evolution, you know, thousand years or more, you know, we've, we've literally been going through this process a long time, a hundred years over the scope of our evolution as a human species is minuscule compared to (laughs) it's nothing. And, and you're right. Like we are not prepared for the level of technology and the level of information that is coming out. We don't even know what every single parts of our brain does. We're, we're literally just getting started. And I agree. I think that, you know, a lot of this evolutionary characteristics still come out with with who we are even in modern day society. And I think a lot of people just don't put two and two together because that no one thinks about it. But we were primal at one point. At one point, we didn't have fire. At one point, we didn't have the wheel. Some people, this might be controversy and compared to, you know, what some people think religion versus evolution. But mm-hmm. if you look at the data, you look at the what at least the science shows, we've we have come a long way in the last couple hundred years, and we are in an era that is so technologically advanced compared to where we were 50 years ago, 100 years ago. It has to affect the psyche and the mental health as a human species. So those are amazing points, and it's it's a lot to think about, and it's it's kind of scary to think about too. And, and it makes me think about imposter syndrome because I know for me, dealing with social media 
dealing with, you know, everything that we talked about, I sometimes feel like, am I really good enough? Am I really this? I just did an episode on imposter syndrome too. And I was, it it made me think like, am I this good podcaster? Am I a good therapist? Am I really a good mom? And I have to look at myself and sometimes like, what is the psyche behind why I'm thinking like that? What is the data and the evidence for why I think the way that I do, but it still happens. Do you find that there's a link with imposter syndrome and this need to be perfect? Oh, yes. Well, and, and one of the greatest anecdotes to perfectionism is is pulling back to our values. Because, you know, for someone like you, where you have these different roles that you participate in, the perfectionism is going to, to kind of eke in if on step 135 of being a good podcaster, you, you know, lose your data for that day, or you, you know, misschedule somehow to what I, I have no idea how podcasts actually work. I just come on. Them. <laughs> but you know, it's, it's little tiny things that you might beat yourself up for. However, step, you know, 100 through 75, and then 76 through 112, and all those went swimmingly. So it's, it's the perfectionist that will pull out these very small issues that we do imperfectly. And then what happens is we lose sight of our values and why we're actually doing them. The reason you're doing this podcast is not so someone's like, ooh, the tone of the volume today was different than three weeks ago. The reason that you're doing this podcast is so somebody can hear something that's going to validate their experience and give them tools to move forward. But the perfectionism robs us of sort of our fundamental purpose in those ways and has us focused on these very tiny details because that's how far we have to generally drill down to find ways that we are acting imperfectly. So one of my favorite things to do in this space, you know, and, and I'm trained in, in a lot of these, you know, evidence-based therapies where they're very protocoled and there's these manuals and you do certain exercises on a certain day. And I, I really had to unlearn the rigidity of some of my training in order to show up properly for my clients where they are at, at, at any given day. And so it's an exposure and moving outside of those very rigid, you know, prescribed walls of, you know, on day six, you talk, or on, you know, session six, you talk about trust when they needed to talk about trust in session four, or they weren't ready to talk about trust till session 21. But if I come back to the values, that's actually what creates the meaning that I became a therapist to have. It wasn't that I checked the boxes of session 12 of the CPT manual. Yeah. And that's, that's one thing I kind of got away from. I'm still, I'm still a therapist, but it's one of the reasons why I'm kind of like getting a little bit away from that is because of the rigidness of, you know, therapy when it comes to, okay, with cognitive behavioral therapy, you have to do this on session one, this on session two, DBT, you do it like this, EMDR, you do it this way and this way. And although the data shows it's effective, not taking yep. that away, yep. I have found that there's been other methods that work better for my clients and even me as a patient, because I've done therapy. I recommend it for anyone who is going through situations in their life. And for me, those rigidness, um, week one, week two, week three, week four, that never worked for me as a person. And when I found myself dealing with imposter syndrome, and I still deal with it, the only thing that I found that has helped for me is reaching out to people who I care about and um, also just asking myself, like, what's the evidence behind what you're thinking. Is it just because user 5910 said something (laughs) bad to you? Or is it because there's actually something that you need to maybe look at or or work on? It's a struggle. And I think that a lot of people 
it's they're they're dealing with it more now because of social media, because of modern days with the pressures with family and working and this need of we have to be a certain way or the stigma of you're supposed to achieve X, Y, and Z by this time. And if you don't, well, what's wrong with me? Maybe I'm not doing a good job. So I think that those are really great points. And um, it's something that I hope that anyone listening to this podcast episode takes away from this to know that it's okay to be imperfect. You don't have to be perfect all the time. And there's still so much more that you could focus on for fulfillment. What advice would you give to your younger self? If you had to look back and, and give any piece of advice, what would that be? This is actually kind of hard. Not because I've had a perfect life. I've had a very imperfect life. See, this is meta because all of all of the things that I fucked up. All, I hope I can say that. Sorry. But like, yeah, you can. You can. We do okay. that on this show. <laughs> My bad. Okay. But like all the things that I screwed up, all the absolute trash relationships I've had, all the, you know, friendships that kind of ended up to be duds and horrible bosses and, you know, years where I was barely making rent, all of that, like those I, I wouldn't actually change those. I mean, it would be great to to have known all the time that I was it was going to work out and I was going to be worthy whether or not X, Y, or Z panned out. That would have been a good thing. But I, I wouldn't, you know, say, oh, you know, take road X rather than road Y because, you know, that that's when, when we get really deep into the into the anti-perfectionism work. It's really about removing judgment from a lot of our experiences and, and, and not just that it's okay to be imperfect, but it's also okay to actually screw up. Um, and that that's part of what makes us human and part of what builds intimacy with us. I remember a couple weeks ago, my kid, like my kid does not yell. My kid yelled out of nowhere. She's three and just like scream. Like I thought she was dying and she was really just like annoyed with me. So she screamed as loud as she could. And I yelled back and I never yell. And she was super upset. I felt very bad. I was like, Oh, ugh psychologist, what am I doing? Go over, hug her, apologize, all these things. Yesterday, last night, she was all over the place, screaming, yelling, all these different things. We eventually get her to bed. It's fine. In the morning, um, my husband gets her ready in the morning and she came in and uh, said goodbye before she went to school. And she goes, mama, I did a lot of yelling last night. I still love you. <laughs> and I was like, but, but if she hadn't seen me screw up and yell, and then apologize and work through it and still love her, she wouldn't have learned that it's okay that she, you know, kind of screwed up and yelled for no reason and needed to apologize later. So the the advice I think I'd, I'd give is just to kind of like, hang on for the ride and it's worth it. <laughs> I love that. I think that's great advice because I, I'm like you, I, I look back at all the things and I'll, I've, I've made a lot of poor choices with relationships and certain things, but I wouldn't be who I am today and where I'm at if I hadn't have done those things. And I think that um, anytime that you start looking at yourself or self-insight is where the growth really comes in. When you have self-insight to, okay, what lessons did I learn? How can I do better next time? How can I show up better for myself and for the relationships in my life? 
That's where the growth comes in. And that's what's really powerful. And I think to all those listening, I agree with you, you know, forgive yourself, enjoy the ride. And I'm going to take this advice with me and and listen to this episode probably more than once because it really (laughs) applies to me. So um, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm very humbled. You are a wealth of knowledge in this area. So um, I I am very humbled that you just took the time and the energy to to come on and, and thank you for all of the nuggets of wisdom that you dropped today. It was an absolute joy. And I hope that some perfectionist out here, you know, who hears this microwaves dinner instead of cooking from scratch or, you know, doesn't spend 40 minutes picking out their outfit or, you know, swipes right on somebody who might not be exactly their type because they heard this conversation. Well, I know I'll be doing that at least. So (laughs) (laughs) let me hop on Tinder as soon as we, as soon as we end the show. All right, Dr. Jen, thank you so much. And to everyone else, if you like this episode, please share it with someone who you think it will resonate with. And until next time, see you on the next episode of Diary of an Empath.